honey bees flying around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Dropping black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. We're setting the table with salami, grass-fed, all-beef salami, made right on the farm in Greenback, Tennessee, the old world way, with lots of time for curing and no artificial preservatives. Fred Sossman has a neat little story about that specific architecture you can find at Pal's Sudden Service restaurants found all over Upper East Tennessee. Thank you so much for your good company. I appreciate you tuning in. We'll first join Chris Berger, who is the proprietor of Century Harvest Farms in Greenback, Tennessee. On this farm, they raise beef cattle, fruits, and vegetables, and they make all sorts of value-added products in their state-of-the-art industrial kitchen, such as pickled okra, preserves, cured meat products like the salami that we're going to focus on today, and they make savory spreads. And they've also created the Century Harvest Farms Foundation, where they provide a place for people with barriers to employment can learn marketable skills in agriculture. The mission of the foundation is to eliminate food insecurity in our community. And the social mission is an integral part to the farm. With the sale of their value-added products, like the salami we're going to talk about today, they put the proceeds back into the foundation. The cattle at Century Harvest Farm are raised on pasture, not a pasture grain mixture. And in speaking with Chris, I learned about some big differences on nutritional, environmental, and independence from government subsidies that this style of farming that he practices supports. This style of raising cattle is so old that it's new. So let's join him now and hear more about what makes their salami different and the nutritional and environmental differences between pasture-raised cattle for beef and grain-fed. And just a little note, when we recorded this, Chris's good old pal and farmhand number one Aussie dog was still alive. And sadly, Aussie has passed away. And if you might hear a sound in this recording, sort of a heavy kind of Darth 
Vader sort of breathing style. That was Chris's late friend, Aussie. He was taking advantage of a real good opportunity to take a daytime nap in the burning hot summertime. I couldn't get the sound of his snoring out of the recording, and I hope you can just look over that. Aussie is sorely missed down at Century Harvest Farm, and he was the Minister of Bovine Affairs at Century Harvest Farm Foundation. Hard to replace a good dog and a best friend. shall we? Yes, let's. Okay, and I'm talking with Chris Berger, and I'm so glad to see you. You too, Amy. Thanks for coming down. Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about your salami today because it is raised right here in Greenback, Tennessee, and it is a superior product than the kind of salami that most of us are used to finding, you know, at the big box stores. Thanks, yeah. It's really, really delicious. Can you just kind of tell us about it and how you make it and, you know, starting with the beef itself, how you raise your beef compared to maybe what we're used to in the big, big market stores? Sure, sure. Well, obviously the, you know, the quality of the beef, you know, has everything to do with how the salami turns out. And, uh, we employ highly sustainable practices in, you know, intensive rotational grazing and the quality of the protein and the quality of the fat that we're using, the nutrient density and flavor density of that material is really second to none. And so we have a very strong base ingredient that we're incorporating into, uh, you know, into all of our offerings, especially our salami. So, you know, when you have a nice, hard, saturated fat that's rich in omega-3 fatty acids and nutritious carotenoids, you have an excellent sort of starting base for, uh, you know, for any product, but especially a cured meat product. Well, it's not greasy. So much of it is just so greasy, and it's not this way. It's, it looks to me to have more meat to it. Yeah, the, the, the greasy... Uh, oily uh, texture that you get from most American charcuterie as, you know, in stark contrast to the uh, sort of the old world European charcuterie is the result of our heavy dependence on oil seeds um, as a source of protein in conventional uh, animal agriculture. So that's your kind of canola seeds and soybeans being the, the most popular. But animals that are raised with a conventional diet that includes oil seeds are all going to have that, that very, very greasy, oily texture that is indicative of an unsaturated fat. That's the loose sort of vegetable oil fat that comes from oil seeds. And that's in stark contrast to the, you know, the saturated fat that our animals basically make you know, when they're raised on pasture on forages alone. I've heard that uh, the grass-fed, like you're doing it, the fats, you say they're saturated fats, but they're actually healthier for us, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, the, the you know, there is uh, <laughs> sort of this very old piece of wisdom that we use and, you know, we say, you know, grain ain't green. You know, when you have when you have animals that are raised on just a starch diet that is a grain diet, they're missing a lot of the fantastic nutrients that animals get from pasture, from living biologically dynamic pasture, from grasses and legumes, basically. Uh, conjugated linoleic uh, acid is a is one nutrient. Uh, Beta carotene is is another nutrient. And uh, omega-3 fatty acids are, those are all, you know, important nutrients that are not going to be present in a conventional beef product. And when we say conventional beef products, those are 
the uh, big feed lots out west where ship them west to get fattened up mm-hmm. on grain, right? Yeah. And is that mostly what we're going to see at the big box stores? Right. Much? They've they've achieved just a tremendous economy of scale uh, in those operations. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but the same thing happens in agriculture. You know, we're subsidizing, you know, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars per year, uh, the ability for manufacturers basically to obtain their raw material at a very low cost. And so what that means is that we have a lot of grain subsidies that allow these enormous beef producers to aggregate a lot of animals in a pretty yucky feedlot kind of environment where there's no grass, no plants, nothing to you know sequester carbon. So all they're doing is emitting carbon. Uh, and, you know, we're basically paying for them to, to run a profitable business. And uh, the, the, the taxpayers are really shouldering, you know, the financial burden of keeping their operating costs low. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's very true that beef like mine and other small-scale, you know, eco-farmers uh, is more expensive. But when you consider that we don't take, you know, any handouts from the government to, to raise our animals, it does have an economic impact. It does, you know, it does change the equation quite a bit. Uh, the grain subsidies are are a big problem. They they do they they do serve a viable purpose in our economy, but it's a terrible you know economic welfare that we're providing, uh, and it's uh, uh, it's le- it's really leading agriculture in the wrong direction, in my opinion. And not as healthy of a product. Yeah, a, a starch based diet. I mean, you you see what happens. Uh, to humans when we eat a starch-based diet. We uh, suffer from diabetes and morbid obesity and, uh, you know, congenital heart failure, uh, you know, heart disease. Uh, you know, these are, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, cattle are starkly different from us, but if they eat a, a diet that is only starch, uh, they really do not have the same uh, nutrient profile in their muscle tissue as, as animals that are raised on pasture. And it feels good to eat something that's produced by your neighbor, and you know you can go look at the field where your cows are raised. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. We are interviewing Chris Berger, proprietor of family-owned and operated Century Harvest Farms in Greenback, Tennessee. And now let's join back up with Chris Berger and hear more about the salami that they make in this old world style without the use of artificial preservatives. And then we'll hear about the foundation that they've established to meet the needs of the people in our community who have barriers to employment and to help the rapidly changing future in America of the ownership of farms in our country. Well, how about preservatives? Uh, so much about nitrates are bad for us, and all this. Um, do you have preservatives in your salami? Yeah, we don't. We don't use any preservatives. Uh, yeah, the nitrates and nitrites. Uh, the overwhelming consensus is that these are all terrible for us. So, you know, and people have been preserving food you know, for a thousand years. I mean, you know, we've crossed mountains and gone over hill and dale and, and made our way across planet Earth very well without nitrates and nitrites for, for a long, long time. So we don't feel that they're necessary to make the best product. And we feel that, you know, actually they should be disincluded if you're trying to make, you know, a superior product, a, you know, a very excellent product. 
um, you know, because they have they have an effect on taste and they have uh, you know effect on the ability for the consumer to really eat it and enjoy it and and feel good about it. You know, feel good about themselves and feel feel like they've done something good for their their body, their family, and you know. So we came out of the gate with that kind of design constraint in mind that we weren't going to use those materials. Well, now your process. Can you tell us? about that, how you process this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So basically our select cuts of beef go through a process by which they're ground with spices and and wine and various materials. And those materials are designed to bring out certain flavors, but they're designed to also provide suitable habitat for the microbiology that we wish to foster in that material to make the preservation possible in an organic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after it uh, goes through that uh, sort of mechanical process with the, you know, with the spices, uh, it goes to ferment. So it's inoculated with the, the bacterial culture and uh, goes uh, into a chamber. It's really you know, warm and moist chamber where um, that culture can really colonize the material and uh, begin the process of fermentation. So from start to finish, how long of a process is it? Yeah, you know, we make you know larger sticks for some of our customers and smaller sticks for some. So the larger take um, about 45 days and the smaller ones take uh, about 20, 25 days. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That seems longer than the mass production method, I would say. Basically, we're not using pasteurization to support our process. We have a live culture living in that material. It's a probiotic culture. It's it's a health and wellness promoting set of microorganisms that we're fostering um, and that people have been using to to ferment charcuterie for for centuries. And so to to pasteurize that would just be to kill all all those organisms. And so that, you know, as far as uh, a, a local artisan house of food creation, we really want to swing to the other side and really represent the, the more life-giving probiotic kind of foods. And uh, we want to provide something for the, you know, the very health-conscious consumer and the very you know, kind of locally-minded consumer uh, that fits their value set. And that's, you know, that's really important to us, and I think it's really important to a lot of people. And you've been listening to an interview with Chris Berger of Century Harvest Farms in Greenback, Tennessee. This family-owned and operated farm specializes in grass-fed beef, charcuterie, preserves, pickled products, along with their Century Harvest Farms Foundation. Up next is a visit with Brenna Wright, a social worker and urban farmer. Brenna is known for her highly successful urban farming with the former Abbey Field Farm in Knoxville and the Knox City Farm in downtown Knoxville. And Brenna is now using her abilities in social work and farming to improve lives at Century Harvest Farm Foundation. Brenna is a dual farm manager at Century Harvest Farm Foundation, and she'll describe her role and the 40-day workforce development program called From the Ground Up. So can you tell us your specific role now at Century Harvest Farm? Yeah, so I'm dual farm manager. So um, I 
I help run programming, um, our agricultural programming out in Greenback as well as in Knoxville. And so, you know, that means working, we, our participants in the program, we call them makers because they're making all the beautiful things. And so, you know, we'll have folks, we'll have makers come out and they'll help me in the garden. Um, they'll, you know, we'll work in the greenhouse, we'll harvest, we'll, you know, all the things that you do on a farm. It's, it looks very farmy. Um, and so, you know, my role was kind of to develop their, help kind of put a plan to their garden space out in Greenback. Um, you know, we introduced the uh, CSA model so that we can kind of have a structure for programming. So, you know, when folks come in and out of the program, they're, they're jumping into something that's already happening um, versus creating new projects all the time. So, you know, they're going to be jumping into, you know, kind of our CSA production and, you know, working with our chickens and our cows and um, all that kind of stuff. And so kind of creating a CSA plan kind of gives us a year-long plan um, as long as well as additional revenue, of course, but also gives us a plan for working with makers and kind of introducing them to like small-scale farming, um, you know, working with uh, customers and, you know, kind of just seeing how enterprise can go in, in its various degrees. So when you're uh, mentioning the program, tell us what that program is that makers are participating in so it's from the ground up program and it's a 40-day program and through that they can so they can choose to specialize in uh, one of three areas so it's maintenance agriculture and culinary you know in greenback at century harvest we have an you know an on-site commercial kitchen with a chef and so folks can learn you know front of house back of house you know kitchen techniques how to prep food food safety stuff all that kind of thing so that kind of prepares them for you know if they want if they were you know interested in going to in something culinary it prepares them for something more than fast food if if that's what they wish we also have a maintenance program where they learn how to drive tractors fix tractors fix cars you know they're learning how to drive skid steers and bobcats and and all this kind of thing so that kind of opens up yeah a skill set that can be very useful for um you know, different jobs. And then, of course, the agriculture aspect teaches you teamwork and, um, you know, how how to kind of care for something and how it can give back. Um, also, uh, just how to plant a farm, how to plant crops, how to, you know, grow food on a budget that's healthy and sustainable for your family, um, and just gets folks outside and moving. So that's, you know, one of the hard things, and this is something I learned a long time ago with working with kids is that, you know, not everybody's open to talk therapy when they come out of trauma and addiction and that sort of stuff. They just, a lot of times there's not words. It's just doing one positive thing after another. And farming is that, you know, farming is, is you're constantly engaging with life in different, of its different stages. And so, um, there's something just very healing about that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, (laughs) ma'am. Girl, if I have troubles or trying to think something out, I just go in that garden. In an hour of pulling weeds, I feel better. Absolutely, yeah, because everything's engaged. You know, you're you're you, you can get into a rhythm. You know, you're engaging into the, you know, producing. You know, something that's going to sustain you and feed you. You're working with the soil. Um, you know, getting all those healthy microbes. You're in the sun, getting the vitamin D, and you're just you're not. You know, you're engaging with life, which is difficult you know talking with one of our uh, gals who graduated the program and now works for the foundation I asked her what was the most meaningful thing um, for her working she of course shows agriculture 
Um, and she, you know, it was the most meaningful, meaningful thing. And she said she was able to learn what real relationships were like because she, before that, didn't actually know. You know, what does it look like to engage in life? Sometimes folks don't even know what that's like because there's just in such a cycle of, of death and despair and um, depression and addiction. And, you know, you, you reach for other things to kind of give you that euphoria, but it's not real. And so, but a lot of times it's like, how do you fill that? Um, and so I think agriculture and just, you know, relationships coming out, teamwork building, all that kind of stuff slowly starts filling that void that you only knew how to fill another harder way. And so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really life changing because that stays with somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they can go to. It's not, you know, it's not a far away uh, rehab place that you have to have money to go stay at. It's not you know, something that's unaccessible, you know, gardening and farming, you know, you've got a little plot of land or a little container and you can, you can get those benefits. And so, um, you know, teaching people that skill, um, is, is really gratifying, um, because you know, you're teaching them something that they can use in whatever form they need to later on in life, whether it is actually food production or if it is just like a therapy sort of thing, you know, maybe they just get really into flowers and that's beautiful, you know? So, but it's a skill that, is in the city especially is hard to reach, which is, you know, with the urban farming, it was like, I always just thought, you know, if they just, if there was just a place, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be pushed on people, but if there was just a place that people could drive by and see it and it was prettier than it used to be, like, to me, that felt like that would matter. Like, that would be a good thing. You have been listening to an interview with Brenna Wright, dual farm manager at Century Harvest Farm Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee, and at the location of what was formerly known as Knox City Farm in downtown Knoxville. More information about Century Harvest Farm Foundation and the 40-day From the Ground Up program, centuryharvest.org. And now we're going to join our friend Fred Sossman from Johnson City, Tennessee, and hear from his series he calls Potluck Radio on the curious architectural style of Pal's Sudden Service Restaurants found throughout Upper East Tennessee. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Sossman. There are 28 PALS Sudden Service restaurants ranging from Norton, Virginia down to Jefferson City, Tennessee. The regional restaurant chain was founded in Kingsport, Tennessee in 1956 by Frederick Powell Barger, whose parents ran a restaurant there called Scobie's. The original PALS is a walk-up-and-order restaurant. Most of the other 27 PALs in operation today are drive through and they're known for their hamburger, hot dog, french fry, and milkshake architecture. When he decided to build the drive through businesses, Powell did not hire a professional architect to design the structures. Instead, it happened over the dinner table at Scobie's with Powell's friend, Tony Baroni. I said, Tony, I've been thinking about doing a drive through only. And he said, oh, I always want to do one of those. So he got that napkin and drew it upside down so I could see it. And then he pushed that aside and said, now here's another idea. I said, I don't want to see anything else. That's what we're going to do. So we did the first hamburger and, and uh, hot dog in the basement of Scobie's out of styrofoam, 
and it had a Corvette shop to put the paint on it. And we had styrofoam all over everything out there where we, we had took, taken a piece of conduit and put a piano wire on it and electrified it so we could carve out, take the styrofoam. We got over in Johnson City in big blocks and glued it together and carved away everything that didn't look like a hot dog or a hamburger. And then had it, and so that's where the first first set came from. We have a boat company now that Still, does okay. Yeah, Yeah, we just call them up and say, give us one large hot dog, one large hamburger to go. That original napkin is proudly framed and displayed at Powell's World Headquarters in Kingsport, Tennessee. For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Saussman. This is Alan Benton, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production. That was the sound of about 55 cows down at Century Harvest Farm moving out of their enclosure into fresh green grass about 1 o'clock in the afternoon.